Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Aaron Takach Tesman, Senior Editor. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. On this week's pod, what's next for Janet Woodcock? And in our other big conversation, John Mariganore, his thoughts on drug pricing and more. Plus, it's that time of month. We'll find out what's on tap in the distillery. And we'll check in on a trio of emerging companies in our emerging company spotlight. Steve, last week, you sat down with Janet Woodcock, at least virtually, to discuss what's next for her. Beyond the usual orderly transition, if and when she does leave FDA, she revealed an extensive list of things she wants to see accomplished at the agency before she departs. She's a 35-year veteran of FDA, and she's accomplished so much. What's their left on her to-do list, Steve? So, yes, she told me that she has committed to remain at FDA to, quote, make sure there's an orderly transition if and when the Senate confirms Robert Califf as commissioner. And she wouldn't go any farther than that, at least in the first part of my conversation. I think it's important to note first that Califf's confirmation is not a done deal. Several Democrats have said that they're going to oppose him. The assumption is that he's got enough Republican support to more than compensate for that. I think that's quite likely, but there's no guarantees, especially in Washington, the the way that the climate is right now. I also asked her about a project that she's launched to revamp the agency's administrative and financial operations. She hired Peter Reich as an investment banker, and I should point out he's a past contributor to BioCentury, to head a deep dive into figuring out how to rationalize FDA's operations. She gave one example. She said each of FDA's centers, you know, their centers for drugs, biologics, medical devices, tobacco, they each have their own IT budgets. They have separate contracts for information security, things like that. Bringing all those things together, figuring out what should be in an enterprise-wide computer systems, what I call the kind of the nervous system that makes any enterprise work properly, figuring out what should be centralized, what should be decentralized could yield a tremendous amount of efficiencies and savings. There are other things that she said that she wants to do to take a a deep dive into the financial operations of the agency to make them more transparent and, again, more efficient. So I put it to her. I said, that's that's all going to take time. Are you really going to just walk out the door right now before all that's been fully baked? And her quote was, she said, I'm certainly not going to walk away in the middle of a project if its success is still unclear. At the same time, she pointed out that she's not a financial wizard. She's not an IT expert. So she isn't doing the actual work. It isn't clear to me if she feels that she needs to see these projects through to the end, or if she simply has to be there long enough to get them going and to be confident that they're on a track that could lead to success. When we found out that Peter Rikers was joining FDA, you know, you scratch your head and you say, what's a longtime banker doing at FDA? But obviously, he brings a tremendous amount of understanding about organizational structure and finance. And to me, seems that she's pretty serious about taking on something that for a huge public agency is is going to be a massive task, but obviously a very needed one. The other thing that she emphasized, Peter Reichers is not going to have any regulatory activities. He's not going to be doing anything that has to do with the oversight of medical products. And that's important to point out because 
he has been involved over his long career with a lot of companies with the biotech industry, and that wouldn't be something that would be appropriate for him to do. And in any case, it's not his, his expertise. I think that another thing that was really interesting and I thought important from my conversation with Dr. Woodcock is that she said that these efficiencies are going to make it possible to stretch FDA's budget, especially by hiring additional staff. And she said this is really critical right now because the agency's staff is stretched thin. I've heard from others at FDA that there's a great deal of burnout. Dr. Woodcock said that FDA's overstretched in almost every aspect of its operations. The pandemic increased the workload at the medical product centers by 50%. At the same time, FDA didn't hire anyone. In fact, it lost staff. So the only way to cope is for people to work harder and longer. That's not sustainable in the long run. Steve, what, what's the timing look like for Califf's nomination process and who are the opponents? It, it feels like we've been without a permanent FDA commissioner for quite some time now. I think that the earliest that we're likely to see a vote would be towards the end of January or the beginning of February. The opponents uh, on the Democratic side, there's Manchin, there's Markey, and there's Sanders. They all opposed him the first time when he was nominated by President Obama. And I said this on the podcast before, I think that the main reason that they're opposing him this time is simply because they don't want to admit that they might have been wrong the first time. There's nothing really that came up in his tenure when he was FDA commissioner for a year or that's happened since he left the agency that would put any meat on the bones of their allegations that he's somehow not going to protect the public from opioid abuse or that his interactions with companies somehow make him unqualified to be the FDA commissioner. All right. Well, thanks for that, Steve. I know you'll continue to keep your finger on the pulse there. Steve's story out of his conversation with Janet is on our website, biocentury.com. And we'll definitely be looking into those initiatives as they continue to unfold. Simone, let's turn now to your conversation with outgoing Alnylam CEO, John Mariganore. What were the most interesting takeaways from your conversation? John Mariganor is, of course, CEO of Al Nylum. He was the first CEO of Al Nylum, and he's been there for over 20 years. And of course, Al Nylum's place is that it is the first company to bring an siRNA drug to market. It has actually brought three drugs to market. It has another one with Novartis, Lecvio and Clisaran, which is marketed in Europe. John has really, I would say, moved from somebody who, well, literally two decades, was focused on siRNA solving a whole bunch of problems, which we've documented over the years, but was really all about siRNA. And I feel like since that first drug on Patro came to market, a lot of the focus has been on innovative pricing models. And that's a lot of what I discussed with him. And he's very much sort of moving to this position where he's got a lot of experience looking at the industry, being in the industry and representing a small company that is really very successful now. And he's really one of the few that has really fought to get innovative pricing models included in his company's drugs. So the first drug, which was on Petro, was launched with a performance-based agreement that had staggered rebates for suboptimal outcomes. Alnylam would cover the cost of liver transplants within certain financial limits. 
Their second drug, which was Givlari, they introduced a prevalence-based adjustment, and that triggers rebates to payers if the number of diagnosed patients they cover exceeds certain estimates. And their third drug, Oxlumo, also had a performance-based adjustment, and they added on patient need adjustment, which is because it's a weight-based drug that goes from pediatric applications to adult applications, and it's priced on a per-vial basis. So you can get dramatic differences in the amount of drug used in an adult relative to a child. So this patient need adjustment allows for a greater level of pricing consistency. So the payer isn't worried about reimbursing a drug in the pediatric setting and then needing to increase that amount as the patient gets older and older and end up with a price that becomes exorbitant. He told me that they worked internally on those pricing models and they went to payers and that payers loved it. And my question to him was, how can individual companies do this? And he said that if companies are willing to put their money where their mouth is on the value proposition of their medicines, they will be welcomed by payers if they go for value-based approaches to reimbursement. I think actually what he talked about there is really fascinating and it should get a great deal of attention in part because it does something that BioCentury has been advocating in our back to school issues for a long time which is moves biopharmaceutical companies away from selling pills and vials and toward a place where they're, they're selling health. Basically, they're selling solutions to healthcare problems. It's going to get them more actively engaged with the payers. It's going to get them more actively engaged with the patients. And it's also going to create a system where there's going to have to be feedback, I think. None of these systems work very well. None of the value-based systems work unless there's good collection of outcomes data on the individual patients and on populations. And then that's used to feed back to reflect changes in the prices, but it also can be used to feed back to improve the provision of services, to improve the way that drugs are developed and the ways that they're administered and distributed. And I think that's really interesting and important. The other thing that that he told you that I thought was also interesting and important was that he is quite upset about the direction that companies have taken by focusing so much resources on very, very rare diseases. Not that anybody thinks that rare diseases shouldn't be tackled, but that in doing that, they're not meeting the public health demands for therapies to treat highly prevalent chronic diseases that are really driving disastrous outcomes in the United States and around the world. Yeah, he called the shift away from chronic prevalent diseases a public health disaster in the industry. Absolutely, Steve, you're right. And he also maintained that there's absolutely opportunity with chronic prevalent diseases to have innovative pricing models that they would be welcomed as well. I thought one thing that was interesting in addition was he was very supportive of the Build Back Better Act. He said there's a lot of hand-wringing about drug pricing and how bad this will be for the industry. But he said it won't be bad for the industry. And we've talked about this as well, Steve, on the on the podcast before, he thinks that it is going to to encourage greater innovation and push companies to do that, to invest in that. And um, and the drug pricing controls are not actually the biggest headwind facing the industry. I think one of the things that's interesting, you could interpret what he's saying. I mean, basically, Build Back Better is targeting the prices of older drugs. One of the ways that industry could respond to that would be by speeding up the innovation cycle and getting more new drugs developed with the idea that they're not going to be able to hold on to the profits for them for quite as many years as they have been 
previously. I think the other thing that is important, he didn't really note it, but the structure of the bill as it is at present dramatically favors biologics, and that's going to include gene and cell therapies. It also dramatically incentivizes companies to develop products for non-Medicare markets, that is for people who are under the age of 65. It'll be interesting to see if it happens, how faithfully the VCs, the investors, and the companies cue to the kind of incentives that are being created and the disincentives that are being created by that act. And a couple of points. So he has joined VC Arch Ventures, so he'll be actually in a position to to guide some of those decisions. He's joined as a venture partner. I wanted just to make a couple more points, Jeff, because I think it's, it's both fair and important to do this. When I said that he thinks that uh, drug pricing isn't the biggest headwind facing the industry, what he actually thinks is one of the biggest headwinds is its reputation. He is very concerned that even though the biopharma industry's reputation went a little north, you could say, during the pandemic and got greater recognition, he still thinks that it's a long way to go to return to a place, what he calls it as where the industry should be a group of scientists and clinicians and business people that are valued and admired by society for what they're doing. When I asked what individual leaders could do, he says, he says they can be fair players in the conduct of their business, not just around bringing products to market, but doing it in a way that is responsible relating to access, thinking about global needs. That's something that is clearly on his mind. He says it's hard, but you know you have to do it. And I want to give him a nod for one other thing. John has been a really massive advocate for women and for equity in the workforce. And he says that there's been lots of pronouncements by industry, but frankly, they're just not enough. He is being succeeded by Yvonne Greenstreet, who is both female and a person of color, and she's going to be the CEO. She's actually homegrown, so she's been at Elm Island for a while. But he says that that is where the change has to happen, at the level of the C-suite and the board. He says the numbers remain unacceptable. It's crystal clear that we have to reassess how we look at talent and how we look at recruiting people into different roles. Yeah, thanks for that, Simone. I mean, we need to hear a lot more leaders like John come out and make those calls because we need to see more change faster. All right, let's turn to translational news. KTT is here once again this week. She is the guru, the goddess behind our distillery. What's on tap, Karen? Thanks, Jeff. There's a lot of other good folks putting in work on the distillery as well. But basically, for those who don't know, the distillery is BioCentury's survey of top translational journals looking for studies that highlight a translational avenue that could be developed into a product. And sometimes that looks like identifying a new target or a new type of biology to explore. And sometimes it looks like characterizing technologies that could go after some known biology. And in in each case, what we're doing is we're identifying the papers that really show disease-modifying experiments rather than just characterizing biology broadly. And we're homing in on the most translationally relevant experiments to give people a sense of what the potential innovation is there. And then they can always follow up and look at the paper if they think that there's an opportunity there they want to follow. So two papers I wanted to highlight this week. One was around that new biology piece. It was a really interesting discovery out of the Riken Institute in Japan from the lab of Sidonia Fagarasan. 
And she and her colleagues looked at the fact that apparently B cells produce the neurotransmitter GABA. So that's kind of unusual or a surprising idea that immune cells would produce something we more think about as involved in neurological signaling. But in addition to identifying that this B cell produced GABA, they showed that it was actually inhibiting T cell responses and that if you could inhibit GABA signaling in an immunological context, you could boost T cell responses to tumors, more infiltration of CD8 positive T cells and more cytokine production by those cells. Definitely an interesting and unexpected avenue to explore. Another one that caught my attention was around an mRNA vaccine for Lyme disease that was based on tick salivary proteins. So there, the biology of tick salivation being involved with Lyme disease is not new, but here they took the path of developing a lipid nanoparticle delivered nucleoside modified mRNA vaccine that encoded 19 proteins produced by ticks in their saliva. And they showed pretty good efficacy in a guinea pig model. And this was out of the lab of Earl Fickrig at Yale University School of Medicine. And it looks like they did have a patent application filed. So for more like this, there'll be an email coming out soon with our distillery table of contents that kind of lays them all out. But you can also access them by going to the BioCentury website and under the analysis menu and articles below that, there's tabs of all of our different types of articles and distillery is one of those. So that's where you can go check out our distillery archive. Thanks for that, Karen. And it's wonderful to hear that ticks may actually be trying to do something good for the world at long last, even if it's solving a problem they caused. I'm certainly looking forward to digging in. We also have Every Friday, and sometimes we get a little extra surprise, we, we do our translation in brief section on biocentry.com with more translational goodies. And so look out for that. Karen? Yeah, that's our translation in brief section generally comes out on Fridays. That's where we dig into things that don't quite fit into the distillery, but we think are really important translational developments to to let our readers know about. One type of content we have there is when companies are putting out translational data, preclinical data around their products. So these don't represent new licensing opportunities the way the distillery does. It's what's going on in the company pipelines, but it gives a sense of the type of progress that companies are making preclinically. And the other type of content we tend to put there is papers that don't necessarily suggest a new product opportunity, but that could inform drug development across the board. So sometimes that might mean some widespread genomic studies that have nominated a target. Sometimes that will be around the latest in the protein structure prediction world, where we've seen activity there from DeepMind and University of Washington and others. Yeah, good call out there. And if you do want to pitch some translational news, our news editing inbox is news at biocentury.com. And if you want to make sure it reaches Karen's desk, put in the subject line, distillery pitch or translational pitch, and we'll get it over to KTT. Turning to our emerging company spotlight, we were talking about women who are leading biotechs and how we need to see more of that in our industry. Two of our three emerging companies that we're highlighting today are led by women. The companies are Chroma Medicine and Aviato Bio, 
Chroma is a Cambridge, Massachusetts company. It's led by Catherine Stamen Breen. It raised $125 million last month in a Series A led by Cormorant. That's the savvy crossover investor led by another woman in biotech, Bihua Chen. The company officially launched last year with tech based on the work of scientific co-founders from Mass General and UCSF, including some of the biggest names in CRISPR research, such as David Liu and Jonathan Weissman. The company's approach is a new spin on gene editing in that it targets the epigenome that controls the gene expression rather than the genomic DNA itself. Next up, London, UK-based neuroscience company Aviato Bio raised $80 million last week in a round led by NEA. The company is led by Lisa Deschamps. She was worldwide business head of Novartis's neuroscience division during its 2018 acquisition of Avexis, and she led the commercialization of SMA gene therapy Zolgensma. Her company aims to deploy gene therapies to treat neurodegenerative conditions via its precision microdosing approach to, to diseases such as frontotemporal dementia, or FTD, and ALS. And finally, our third company, Anokia, out of Sweden, is creating libraries of engineered human cells that enable standardized, automated TCR target discovery and characterization. You can find all three emerging company profiles on our website, biocentury.com. And just a reminder that we've just wrapped our eighth annual China Healthcare Summit, and the content is still available online through January 15th. You can still register. Go to biocenturychinasummit.com. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.